Hi, this is Jackie, and we're in a series where we're talking about the sexual purity movement. Recently, I saw a post on Facebook by Dr. DeMay saying that she'd like to teach a class on this very subject. Well, she's a professor up in Michigan, so I knew I couldn't take her class, but I sure can talk to her here on this podcast. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcello Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Welcome back. Uh, Some of you may not know who Kristen is, so let me introduce her to you. She is a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University. Her research focuses on the intersection of gender, religion, and politics. Her first book, which we'll be talking about a lot today, is called A New Gospel for Women, Catherine Bushnell and the Challenge of Christian Feminism. You're going to really love this dialogue. And she has another book coming out exactly, I think, this week, and that's called Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation, which was birthed from her study on evangelical masculinity and and militarism. She's written for the Washington Post, Religion News Service, Christianity Today, Christian Century, Religion and Politics. She's been interviewed on NPR, CTV, CBC, and CNN, and the New York Times, The Economist, and The Christian Post, and I could go on and on. The point is, we're privileged to have her here, her heart, her mind, and her expertise with us today. Several years ago, I had the privilege of talking with you in your home in Michigan. And if I remember correctly, you had two or three little ones moving around. There was a few. Three, yeah. (laughs) That's right. Okay. And how old are they now? Because they seem like toddler, early elementary. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. So my youngest now is, uh, oh, actually just turned seven last week. And my oldest is 13. So 13, 11, and seven. Wow. Okay, yep. So it was several years ago. And I think um, one of the things that struck me, was about your story of your upbringing in the conservative evangelical church. And then we're, you know, we're having this conversation and you're writing a book about Kate Bushnell, which is a Christian feminist and you're, you're doing history and gender at your, your school. And I'm as a professor and I'm thinking, wow, how did she get from here to here? And what was that Mm -hmm. like for you? So would you share a little bit with our audience, a little bit of that journey? Sure. Yes. I grew up in a, a uh, conservative home in a conservative town um, in Northwest Iowa, very, very Christian. And um, I, I really had no exposure to women's history, um, to feminism at all. I went to a small Christian college where I didn't even have a female professor in all four years. And then I went off to graduate school uh, at the University of Notre Dame to study American religious history. And my first semester there, I read my first book in women's history. And I was just floored by um, how rich the field was, how much I didn't know and how important I thought all of that was. And so right then and there, I switched my study to 
uh, the study of women and religion in America. And I think that much of my work has been somewhat autobiographical in, you know, I've been looking to history to try to understand the relationship between Christianity and feminism. You know, I had had so little exposure to feminism growing up and the exposure I did have uh, was not a positive. And and then as a historian, I started to read the history of feminism, and I was so impressed by by the courage of so many women who had come before. Uh, really, much of my academic work, much of my research, has been trying to to figure out this puzzle of what happened to Christianity and feminism. Why do so many Christians have such a a, a problem with feminism? And and, and that's really been a, a driving question for my research, and that was the driving question for, for my first book. So let me ask you this. We're going to have to go through, because you're exactly right, my audience, um, a lot of them are coming out of the conservative evangelical world. And the word feminism, mm-hmm. like, it, it, there's a few right now that want to just turn it off right now because, they're, you know, they're, sure. they're nervous, right? This idea of... They have an image of the of a feminist being a bra burning male hater, yeah. and yeah. Um, and some of that wouldn't you say has to do with a lack of our understanding of the history um, of women yeah, like Kate Bushnell? And so, tell us a little bit when you say feminism, it, particularly when we're talking about Kate Bushnell and the women in history that you've learned about. What what exactly do you mean? And what exactly did you find that surprised you that was counter to the negative? Um, idea of feminism that we tend to have in the conservative church? Sure. Uh, So I think the most important thing I can say about feminism as a historian is that feminism itself changes over time dramatically. Uh, So what counts as feminist in the 1870s might look quite different uh, from what counts as feminist in the 1920s and the 1970s and today. And that's just how history works. Things change over time. You can say the same thing for American Christianity. That changes dramatically over time as well. And so we should expect that the relationship between Christianity and feminism at any given point is is going to look different um, from where we are are today, um, but if you uh, let, let me start by saying Catherine Bushnell lived long before uh, second wave feminism, the 1970s. That kind of gave feminism a bad name among many Christians. Uh, this is the uh, and you know, to correct the record, they didn't actually burn bras. They wanted to, they just couldn't get the permit to do it legally. So, um, uh, but she lived long before. Uh, the 1970s. She was born in 1855. And so her, uh, her, her life, her, her um, feminism, and the word wasn't even really around at that time, but really her interest in women, in protecting women, in empowering women, in working for the rights of women came wholly from her Christian faith. And she was not the first, if we want to use the language Christian feminism, she was not the first Christian feminist. There were so many women throughout the the history of Christianity who read the scriptures and felt led by the Holy Spirit to work for women's empowerment, not for the sake of women's empowerment, but because they thought that was what the gospel taught them and they wanted to free women to serve. And there is such a long history of that. And Catherine Bushnell is just one woman in that long history. Okay, well, I'm going to 
we're going to get to what is the the history of of the uh, sexual Puritan movement. But before we do, let me ask you this, because this is an interesting thing that I think a lot of listeners don't realize. Women like Kate Bushnell, when we say they're Christian feminists, they were looking at some ills that were happening in their society and going, oh, this does not line up with Jesus. And so like mm-hmm. when I read your book, um, one of the things that I didn't know that was surprising to me was the temperance movement, which I thought was yeah. all about getting rid of alcohol because, you know, we were prudish and we just didn't like drinking. Exactly. But it actually had a lot to do with the fact that men were drinking, getting drunk, coming home and beating their wives. And so women mm-hmm. like Kate Bushnell, this is what you taught me, I didn't know, whoa, came and said, whoa, we have to, in order for women to stop being beaten, we need to keep men from coming home drunk. And so it was yeah. really a domestic violence issue. Not as, you know, a a purity, uppity, uppity, we don't like alcohol issue, which I didn't know. So share with us a a little bit more about what she discovered while she was out there working amongst women. Like when we say empowering women, what, what did she come up against? Like you list in your book, some, some occurrences that happened in Wisconsin that I had no idea about Michigan, China, and Mm -hmm. India. What did she see that then made her go, whoa, these are not in align with Jesus and his gospel. Yes. So, I mean, she first, uh, she was close friends with Frances Willard, who was one of the most um, influential uh, American women in the 19th century, Christian women um, in particular. And she uh, was the head of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And you're right, that sounds awfully prudish these days. And Victorian women tend to get a bad rap. But uh, but temperance was absolutely a women's rights issue. And that's what... Um, Frances Willard understood, and she took Bushnell under her wing. They had been neighbors in Evanston and and were, were very close colleagues and friends. And so temperance itself was a women's issue. And Catherine Bushnell, um, after she had grown up and um, um, moved away from Evanston, she became a missionary in China for three years. Uh, and then after that time, came back to the States. And when she came back to the States, she started to work with uh, the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And so she was very much part of that Christian women's culture, trying to work for women's rights and to protect women in a society that um, that was very oppressive to them. And in, in you know, in, in their own lives, in their own homes, uh, it wasn't just that men could, their husbands could come home and abuse them and their children, but, you know, their husbands could drink away their wages. Women, you know, couldn't make enough money to support themselves. They didn't have a right to divorce. Um, and, and so uh, oh, alcohol was one factor, but Frances Willard quickly expanded the Christian Temperance Union to a, to a do-everything policy, basically looking around and seeing all of the, the things that were constraining women from dress reform to world peace and also social purity. And social purity was a kind of euphemism for sexual purity. And um, what was at the heart of the social purity movement was an awareness of the sexual double standard. This idea, again, go back to Victorian era, that women were supposed to be perfectly pure, that they were naturally innocent, and sexual purity was of utmost importance, that women were, were su- supposed to maintain this absolute purity. God made them that way. They were, you know, um, had no, no lust, no sexual desires of their own, and they were just um, made morally superior and absolutely pure, which, which is a high standard for any and, woman. And it was, let, me, let, yeah. me, let me ask this question. Uh, 
First of all, help the audience understand when you say Victorian age, what time frame are we talking about? And then secondly, so 19th century, yeah. So 19th century. So, yeah, and then the also this Victorian picture of sexual purity that you just laid out, that yeah. actually woman was asexual, pretty much, has no sex drive. Exactly. Isn't, that wasn't yeah. thought of prior to the Victorian age, correct? No, no. Things were different before where, you know, women was a daughter of Eve and, you know, was likely to be uh, especially sexual or equally sexual. You know, she was a human being. And uh, it was really in the uh, 19th century uh, when um, this idea kind of morphed and the I ideal of female sexual purity and this ultra kind of femininity emerged. And it's a complicated story that has to do with economic changes and religious changes. But, you know, I think that this is kind of familiar to us today because we're still living in the aftermath of this and it still is alive and well in some circles. So so that was kind of Bushnell's um, move into the social purity movement. She wanted to address this issue of the sexual double standard because she saw it at its worst. Um, and she was working with um, prostitutes, actually. She had moved out to Denver. She was a medical doctor and very quickly as one of the very few uh, female medical doctors in the West at that time, started to work with um, prostitutes and, um, and their health, and then also very quickly um, looked to ways to address their needs and their lack of rights. And that led her to um, go to uh, uh, Wisconsin and northern Michigan. And on the, at the behest of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, she led an investigation into the brothels in the lumber camps in, in uh, Wisconsin and Michigan. And what she discovered there was shocking to her. Uh, there were these these brothels that essentially entrapped young women into a life of prostitution. They had no resources, but even if they wanted to leave, uh, it was very difficult to do so. Not primarily because of rumors of you know guard dogs and and armed guards there, but because of the judgment that they faced in the communities, the judgment of quote unquote respectable Christian members of these communities who thought that any woman who in that way, who was a prostitute, really was not worthy of any protection, not worthy of any rights, and really deserved whatever she got. And the abuses of these women were so abhorrent to Bushnell. And yet she, as a Christian, was just shocked that these were Christian men and women in these communities who were essentially willing to, to throw out the lives of these oppressed women. And that, um, and so she, she did this national expose. It made all the papers across the nation, and she drew attention to um, both the plight of prostitutes and to the sexual double standard. So, and what I think maybe the audience doesn't know too, which I thought was interesting, she did do this huge um, interview, but previous to that, other people had gone and there had been reports that these girls had been mm -hmm. taken off the street and forced into the brothels, et cetera, et cetera. And some guys did some investigation and came back yeah. and said, no, 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 they really wanted to be there. This is really, they're enjoying it. There's nothing going yeah. on here that's bad. And then she went, yeah. oh no, wait a minute. And so she goes in and finds it from a, sees it from a very different lens, which I exactly. think is, is an interesting point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, she she totally dismantled this this you know previous quote unquote investigator who had said it's all cool, it's all good, 
Um, and she was a meticulous investigator. So she documented everything. And, you know, we have her accounts and her, her records and her notes. And, and it was really remarkable. And so many people tried to discredit her and discredit her own morality. I mean, what kind of proper woman would be, you know, visiting brothels? And, and she would just have none of it. She was incredibly bold and had the support of other Christian women who came up behind her and, and protected her. And again, this, this was, during the Victorian era when when uh, sex was kind of a taboo subject. And she really pushed against that in Christian circles and said, you know, we Christian women, if we can't talk about this, how are we going to address this, this violence against women? And so she really pushed that and she was able to bring uh, thousands of Christian women into this conversation, have them support her work. And really the, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which was an international organization, was able to lead the charge on this. That's amazing. I, I bet most of the people listening to this podcast have no idea who she is and the courageous right. work she did. I mean, she was a forerunner for sure. I want to read something yeah. in your book on page 86 and then move into how, because it's funny, she's a medical doctor. She's also a researcher, obviously. Yeah. And um, after seeing everything that she sees, and I'm going to read this quote, she then goes back and starts becoming a theologian, actually, So let, and, mm-hmm. and reevaluating the interpretation of the scriptures. So let me read. This is what you write very beautifully, by the way. After witnessing repeated instances of Christian men perpetrating acts of alarming cruelty against women, Bushnell could not, could only conclude that Christianity itself, as it had been handed down from generation to generation must be to blame. The pervasiveness and erroneousness of the abuse she witnessed at the hands of Christian men, together with the lack of outrage exhibited on the part of so many of her fellow Christians, convicted her that the problem was not simply one of weak or corrupt individuals failing to live up to the ideals of the Christian faith. Rather, the problem must lie within the teachings of the faith itself, teachings that depicted women as weak and subversive, and, uh, subservient and men as masters with God-given authority to rule over women. Yet Bushnell refused to accept that such patriarchal Christian doctrines reflected God's will for humanity. Instead, she set out to examine the scriptures from beginning to end to discern how God's original intent for women and men had been distorted for centuries of faulty translation and skewed interpretation. I mean, this woman is amazing. So she goes back and she starts studying the scriptures like a theologian. Can you share Mm -hmm. with us? Because again, this... I got to tell you, Kristen, this discovery in your book that she had been researching translation and miscued interpretation and what she had concluded, I had been doing over here in Dallas, Texas in the 21st century, and I didn't know that women had been working on that a long time ago. I found it actually a little discouraging. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm still doing the same work she was doing. But anyway, yeah, tell that. us, you, yeah, that's, that's how I walked away from that. I was a little bit discouraged, like, yeah. oh my gosh, this has been going on for a long Understood. time and I didn't know. <laughs> yes, it's a lost history over and over again. Yes. Oh gosh. So thank you for writing it. It was so helpful for me to know this, but tell us a little bit. So she goes back, she goes back. What did she find when she re-examined the scripture? You mentioned several things that she pulled out. Yeah. Uh, so she, fortunately for us, before she be, uh, switched to the study of medicine, she had um, been studying the classics at Northwestern University. So she already had a background in ancient languages. And then she added the study of Hebrew on her own. And um, the, the, the real catalyst 
for this was um, after she did her work in Wisconsin, she ended up doing the exact same thing, this uh, kind of expose of, of um, the abuses of um, of women in brothels at the hands of Christian men. But um, now she did it internationally, globally in the British Empire and got all kinds of international attention for that. And there it was even heightened, this tension between these are Christian men, white Christian Western men who at this point were supposed to be bringing, you know, the glories of Western civilization and Christianity to all of the benighted heathens across the the globe. And instead they were abusing um, uh, women of color Um, and, um, you know, the quote unquote heathen women. And this was just startling to her. And so she, she um, opens the scriptures and is just pouring out her heart. And she comes to the conclusion that um, the teaching of that, that women were created as inferior to, to men and that women are supposed to submit to men is absolutely antithetical to the, the biblical story and to the message of the gospel. And she starts looking closely at the original um, languages that uh, as original she has access to and starts to understand that numerous passages that are absolutely critical to understanding God's will for women and God's will for men have been very sloppily translated as well as erroneously interpreted. And I mean, she looks at the the Genesis story and comes up with an, a revolutionary reading of the first chapters of Genesis that end up um, redefining sin for men and women, redefine sin for men as asserting authority over women and redefine sin for women as subjecting themselves to submitting themselves to men rather than to their God. And so that, you know, completely changes the, what happens next in the Bible. Um, but she, she really starts with looking at just some simple words, uh, words in the scriptures that she discovers are translated very differently if they apply to women than if they are applying to men. So one of those um, that may be familiar to some of your listeners is the, the Hebrew word chayil, um, which Rachel Held Evans has made more famous, I think, more recently, yes. um, eshet chayil, a woman of valor. Um, so chayil is a word Bushnell said that appeared over 200 times in the Hebrew Bible, so the Old Testament, and it was translated like army, war, host, uh, forces, power, wealth, valiant, again, woman of valor is how Rachel Held Evans has, has, has translated it, um, except for four times Bushnell said, the four times where it referred to a woman, and then it was translated as virtue or chastity. And, um, and Bushnell understood that, you know, how this faulty translation led into the sorts of abuses that she saw in the brothels, how this helped construct this sexual double standard that men were supposed to be brave and strong and fighters and women passive and quote unquote virtuous. And, and this virtue was so elevated. Um, the passages um, where, where it translated that for women were in the book of Ruth where, you know, it, it would be reasonable to, to call Ruth uh, um, a strong woman, a woman of courage, of valor. Yes. And also Proverbs 31, um, where, you know, this is the woman who is, has business enterprise and she's wise and she's kind and she's, she's, she's good at embroidery and all these other things, but no mention of her sexual faithfulness to her husband and yet there too, a virtuous woman. And, um, and she goes through the scriptures and just finds numerous examples where the very same word is translated 
So um, sober or temperate for a man, discreet for a woman, pure and clear for a man, or chaste as a woman. And she realizes that what she had been taught or kind of, you know, uh, was biblical womanhood, if you will, was actually uh, imposed on the scriptures by male translators and interpreters and was not actually the word of God. Wow. Yeah. Well, that'll blow some of my listeners' minds, but I've already been prepping yeah. them. <laughs> it happens. It happened and it happens, yeah. right? Okay. So it let's does. go back to the Victorian age and this elevation of women, the feminization actually of virtue mm-hmm. of sexual uh, purity during that time yeah. and the words modesty and decency and purity all aligned with womanhood. And how did purity at that time tie into patriarchy and where do we see that shift or move in the 1920s? So take us back to the Victorian age, what's going on and then how it shifts to the 1920s. And then I want to move to what it looks like for us today, where it's showing up and how it's impacting us today. Yeah. So, so, Bushnell and and other women, Christian women of her time, uh, had identified that the sexual double standard is very dangerous. It sets up for the abuse of women. Again, if if you are not perfectly pure and uh, or or even perceived as such, then you have no rights. Um, now, this is only ever possible, I should say, um, for white women of means, right. women of color, poor women were were. Um, automatically excluded and and with with some horrific um, effects really for um, for African American women in particular in our country's history. Um, so um, all of the women in Bushnell circles agreed that the sexual double standard was um, was dangerous and was um, not biblical. To bring that or, or to fix that, um, they advocated sexual restraint for men, because this is a kind of, you know, well, boys will be boys mentality. (laughs) Um, Men were perceived as naturally lustful. That's how God made them. And so you can't really expect them to restrain themselves. It's all on the women, right? So they have to be modest. They have to not tempt. They have to, and if if anything goes wrong, while you can't blame a man, you're going to, you're going to blame the woman. They wanted none of that. But at a time when Um, sexual activity was inherently dangerous, diseases, pregnancies, and and so on. They thought that the best way forward, and they thought the biblical way was sexual restraint for men as well as women. So they wanted to de-emphasize the importance, this utter importance of sexual purity for women, but they they didn't want to, you know, uh, embrace kind of sexual experimentation or anything they would they would defend women and and a woman who sinned you know in their words um had just as much right to redemption as any man um so they wanted to rectify that but they really wanted to emphasize male restraint um men needed to to practice this restraint and that's what they thought was going to be critical to bring about greater freedoms and empowerment to women now by the 1920s right i said earlier that feminism changes over time And we really see that happen by the 1920s when many women's rights activists in the in the 19th century agreed with Christian women on this. Many women's rights activists were themselves Christian and they wanted to get rid of the sexual double standard. And that seemed the best way to do it by the 1920s for a variety of reasons. A number of women's rights activists start to say, you know, that was getting us nowhere to get rid of the sexual double standard. Let's liberate female sexuality. That will then bring things into into balance. For women like Bushnell, 
and she lived to be 91 years old. So we get to follow her through all of these these historical changes. For women like Bushnell, they were horrified at this because they thought that that would only play into the the power that men already exerted. That if you didn't address kind of patriarchal power structures in society and in the in sexual relations, you are only going to hurt women more. And so there was this fundamental divide about sexuality in the 1920s. Many Christian feminists persisted in this older model of sexual restraint for everybody. Many um, what we might call secular feminists by the 1920s were ready to try something new. Um, and so that's really the this, this separation that we see by the 1920s. Um, there were some women in Bushnell circles who really tried to to hold these two together. And, and they really pushed it against the especially conservative Christians in the 1920s who were horrified by flappers and by, you know, all of the sex everywhere. And they said, you know what? Don't forget that Victorian morality was profoundly immoral. It was abusive to women. And do not blame the younger generation for rejecting it. They should. Now, let's, let's, let's see what we should do going forward. Um, but I love those women. These were, these were women ministers in the 1920s who were saying this. And I can't help, as a historian and as a Christian woman, wondering what history would have been like, what church history would have been like in American history if we had had, if these women had had larger platforms, right? If they could have really spoken into the moment, but instead they were marginalized. Yeah, that's a shame. By the time we hit the 1950s, we see a switch again, back more Mm -hmm. into, again, this beaver cleaver home. Um, It was was more domesticated than what we see, I think, Mm -hmm. in the Victorian age, meaning now it was less, I would say, I would say soft patriarchy versus high patriarchy. Um, but we, we do see it revert back to in the 1950s. So we have this, if you will, a progressive sexual revolution in the 1920s. And then in the 1950s, it seems to go back. And, and I, from what I can understand and what little of research I've done on sexuality, um, gender in the Bible and in our church history, I, I think most of us, in the evangelical world, only know from 1950 on. Like, yeah. like we live in this, we, you know, our churches are still a byproduct of what we're teaching from, from what was being taught and brought forth in the 1950s, I think. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. let's talk about, you've written some articles and you've made the statement that modern sexual purity, which let's talk about what that is, and then mm-hmm. you say reinforces patriarchy and makes women yeah. susceptible to abuse. So talk to me a little bit about that. What is modern sexual purity purity today and um, and how does it reinforce patriarchy and how does it make women more susceptible to abuse? Right. So um, when we get to kind of the post-World War II era, the 1950s and into the, especially into the 1960s, we see a growing emphasis in Christian circles and um, by this point, evangelical circles on sexual purity of women again. And um, it is in some ways a reversion to this kind of mythical ideal. Um, We've already seen that Victorian sexuality wasn't very ideal in many ways, Um, but people forget that very quickly and it it gains this kind of mythical um, status. 
But um, by the 1960s, that's when we really see kind of American evangelicals, white evangelicals coalescing as not just a religious movement, but a political and cultural movement as well. And um, by that time, we have um, other Americans who are starting to uh, once again kind of reject some of this um, quote-unquote traditional morality, sexuality, and so on, that had really taken a conservative turn in the 1950s and start to once again identify um, the oppression of women in, um, in society, in the workplace, and in the domestic sphere, and so on. And that's where we see the rise of, of what's sometimes referred to as a second-wave feminism. Mm-hmm. And uh, evangelicals at that time then, you know, in the 1950s, a lot of Americans were kind of re-embracing traditional gender roles. And I always use kind of scare quotes around traditional as a historian, right. I have to. Right. But, um, um, and, and so evangelicals were as well, and they weren't really that out of step with, with many other Americans. But by the 1960s, when we see the rise of feminism again, and the anti-war movement and civil rights movement, and everything was kind of disrupted. All of these traditional values were, were up for grabs. And that's when we see evangelicals really um, kind of latch on to a, a very strict idea of sexual purity again, and particularly for women. And gender roles become really critical to their self-identity. Um, and so this is when we have, you know, James Dobson coming around and a lot of these family values evangelicals who help to mobilize evangelicals across the country into this, this again, religious and political movement, and gender roles are right at the heart of that. Um, Controlling female sexuality and rejecting the feminist movement is really key to this. And and we see this kind of re-embrace of a a, a sexual double standard. It's not like they were saying that all men should just, you know, um, throw morality out the window and yet, the emphasis is absolutely on, on the responsibility of women not to tempt men because God created men with testosterone, and that's very hard to control. But God knew what he was doing because we needed rugged protectors. <laughs> and um, so it's all up to women to preserve social morality um, by, you know, staying very modest. And at least until they're married and um, not to tempt men. And again, any infraction is going to be blamed on the woman. So sexual purity is very important. But what's different is that in the 1960s and 1970s and onward within Christian circles, we do not have this strong contingent of Christian women who are arguing against the double standard and who are calling out patriarchy. I mean, we do have Christian feminists in the 1970s and the 1980s, trailblazers, but we don't have this massive Christian movement. And so the the sexual purity and um, movement that really, you know, starts in the 1960s over against feminism and then morphs into this I kiss dating goodbye, right, of the 1990s and the 2000s, depending on where your listeners are, what age bracket, they're going to they're going to have their own um, kind of exposure to different, you know, greatest hits of the evangelical sexual purity movement. But throughout that is a uh, emphasis on purity that is um, within the confines of patriarchy. And that is exactly what Bushnell and 
her, um, um, the women in her circles were fighting against. They saw the dangers. They saw the abuses. They saw how women, by being told to be modest and subservient, would not have the strength necessary to protect themselves, that you cannot say that men are going to protect women. And that's precisely what um, the modern purity movement um, um, preached, that you know, it was up to fathers and then husbands to protect and guard a daughter's or a wife's purity. And that just sets women up for abuse. You need to empower women, free women, in order to truly protect them. And so what we have in the modern purity movement is a return to the sexual double standard and recommitment to patriarchy as God's will, which is absolutely antithetical to what Bushnell and her generation were trying to do. You know, it's funny, when I was on staff as a, <clears throat> at a mega church here in Dallas, um, conservative evangelical. And one time I was talking to another staff member. He was a guy. And um, I talked something about going out to lunch or whatever. And he's like, oh, yeah, we can't ride in a car together. Yeah. And I was like, why not? And he goes, well, because, you know, men think about sex every 60 seconds, which yeah. actually is not true, statistically. <laughs> but I, I looked at him. And again, this goes back to these, these, these um, ideas have been, I mean, mm-hmm. we're talking 21st century in an urban mm-hmm. environment with educated, mm-hmm. white educated church, right? And this guy yeah. is telling me this. It's just how men are made. I mean, it's just the way men yeah. are. And I remember saying to him, well, you know, if a woman came to me and she said to me, Jackie, I, I have the urge to buy a blouse every 60 seconds, or I have the urge to eat ice cream every 60 seconds, I would tell her that's an addiction, yeah. right? Or idolatry. I would not tell uh-huh. her, oh, well, you know, God just made women to shop. You know, like, and so I say this to him and he looks at me and I'm like, you do understand how absurd your statement is, right? But he didn't. So I've, I've lived underneath this, like this double standard. Um, and again, that's not so much abuse, but it does separate my ability to be in circle. Like if this is the mentality that men have, I can't be with them because, you know, we're going to have sex every moment. Then I actually can't be in circles where male leadership is. And that's where they make the top decisions and who gets hired mm-hmm. and who, right. And I'm not in that circle because exactly. I am too dangerous. So it's, it may not be physical abuse, but it definitely keeps the hierarchy in place. Exactly. Sure. And you know, he, he absolutely believed that because that's what he has been told. told. And after I, after I finished um, the book on Bushnell, a new gospel for women, and I started looking into you know, more of these contemporary issues and in, in the recent history, really, from you know the 1960s onward, I was astounded by how almost every you know evangelical book on sex, on how to be a Christian man, how to be a Christian woman, you know, raising children, all of this, it is just saturated yep. with this teaching. It absolutely, absolutely. it's everywhere. Yeah, and I don't think people recognize they actually think it's God saying it, like. Thus says the Lord versus no, this is an evolution of history and economics and politics and patriarchy. There's all kinds of factors here at play that have nothing to do with thus says the Lord. And that's the shocking part. They've merged them so closely to God as if it can't be different than him. And it is. So you wrote um, some articles about, uh, (laughs) here we go, how evangelicals (laughs) responded to Trump's appalling tape about, you know, women grabbing women's pussies um, just before he was elected. Uh, share yeah. with us a little bit about your thoughts on that. Yes. 
So, uh, you know, this was in the fall of 2016, just weeks before the election, when the Access Hollywood tape was released. And, and we have, um, you know, Trump on film um, talking about sexually assaulting women and joking about it. And there was a lot of talk at that time, uh, you know, surely, surely this is going to be a step too far for evangelicals. And we did have a small number of evangelicals speak out at that time for about a week or so saying, oh, this is problematic. Um, and, and women in particular who, who have, have stayed steady on this, people like Beth Moore and um, Jen Hatmaker and others. And um, but for many evangelicals, within a week or two, they had come back around and said, yeah, but we're still, you know, we're, we're still going to vote for him. And um, one of the ways of understanding that is, you know, this was a transactional bargain that that enough evangelicals were willing to hold their noses and vote for him for all these other reasons. Um but having really immersed myself in the writings of evangelicals for the last, um, over the, the course of the last 60, 70 years, I, I realized that there were deeper affinities here. And having looked at evangelicals in their own churches, dealing with, and, and in their own homes, dealing with questions of abuse, um, I, I thought that there were some deep affinities. And, um, you know, evangelicals, have a long history of um, dismissing allegations of abuse against women, of blaming the woman, of, of, you know, if you weren't absolutely pure, and by definition you weren't, if you were in any sort of sexual relationship, even coerced, you know, so much for your purity, then it is your fault. Again, boys will be boys. And, um, and it's up to women. It's all on women. And so there are so many issues and in, or instances that are recently coming to light through the national media, but that have been um, already uh, for the last over a decade, bloggers have been exposing stories, horrific stories of abuse in evangelical churches, missions, organizations, and in families. And we see the same patterns repeated over and over again. That is dismissing the allegations, blaming women, blaming even child victims of mm. abuse, defending men and saying that, you know, the gospel witness must be defended. So we need to we need to cover this up. We need to sweep this under the rug. And um, when I saw the, the conversation around Trump in 2016, a few months later around Roy Moore, and later on, Brett Kavanaugh, the patterns were very similar. And so it led me to conclude that there is something endemic within evangelicalism itself that creates these patterns and that we really need to extricate, much like Catherine Bushnell back in the, in the 19th century finally said, you know, the crime is the fruit of the theology. Mm. So what do you think we, sh we need to do to move forward? Because I agree with you, this has been embedded um, in conservative evangelicalism for a long time. And I still yeah. see it alive and well and there. And even with yeah. all that's come to um, fruition with the Church 2 movement, I, I still don't see act, a lot of action being taken. Not, not like you no. would think we should in light of the evidence, the preponderance of evidence that's been brought forth. So what do you think we yeah. need to do to, to take this to the next step? Um, especially to take Catherine Bushnell's legacy forward? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think it's uh, really important to be, as you were suggesting earlier, suspicious of 
any talk of, you know, this is biblical, this is biblical womanhood, biblical sexuality, and and to just keep an eye out for how much culture and you know, uh, um, shapes and distorts the words of scriptures and how scripture is taught. And, and particularly around, I think, the issue of patriarchy. If you read Bushnell, and if you know Bushnell's story, then you know that there is a strong, strong case to be made that biblical Christianity does not support patriarchal authority. And if you just keep that as even a possibility, then um, so much of what's being packaged and sold as biblical manhood and biblical womanhood and biblical sexuality is, in fact, not biblical. So I think that's one key takeaway. Um, another really important insight that Bushnell had was, you know, when she was uh, searching the scriptures to figure out how Christian men could perpetrate such horrific acts against women. And she, she um, very quickly honed in on the question of power. And so many of the biblical passages, right, that uh, are, are pointed to in defense of um, patriarchy and patriarchal authority and female submission, uh, she thinks utterly misconstrue, not just the, the texts themselves, but the heart of the gospel message. And that is that Jesus did not claim power for himself. He divested himself of power. And to follow Christ is to follow that pattern. So any man who is claiming power over anyone else and over any women is not following in the way of Christ. And that has been profoundly important and formative for me in understanding my own Christianity and in understanding what faithful Christianity needs to look like in a church, in a family, um, in terms of politics. And, And so I think that is another key takeaway. So just what is what is truly biblical and what is at the heart of the gospel and what does that mean about power? And then I'll say one more takeaway, which is actually not from Bushnell in particular, but it's um, from Rachel Denhollander, who's done, of course, just such critical work in, in this area. And uh, when she talked about, she, she's a survivor of, um, um, who was the first witness to testify against Larry Nassar. Um, the sexual abuser at Michigan State, um, female gymnast, and uh, in her in her witness testimony um, and subsequent interview with Christianity Today, she talked about um, how how the church is the least safe place for um, um, victims to come forward of, of sexual abuse, and she made this powerful argument um, that the Church of Christ does not need your protection. Again, like so for so many female victims, there has been this en- enormous pressure to stay quiet. You don't want to ruin this man's reputation. You don't want to bring negative press to the church because the gospel will suffer for right, it. Jesus and who wants reputation the gospel? is on the line. Exactly. And she says, no, you know, this is, Jesus doesn't need your protection. No. Jesus needs you to do justice. That's right. He is God after all. He doesn't need us to take care of him. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, that's a big one. I think that's really good for us to hear. Um, I I have started spending more and more time using Jesus as my hermeneutic, if you will, for understanding Mm -hmm. the heart of God and what it's supposed to look like. You know, I graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary, and at the time in which I did, there seemed to be a tremendous amount of emphasis on Paul's words. And I know they love Mm -hmm. Jesus and all of that, but but there seemed to be like somehow Paul got more weight 
than Jesus. Yeah. And um, over the years, I've, I've kind of come to note Jesus gets the weight. And when I, yeah. when I look at Jesus, who John says is God in the flesh, is, is God's communication to the world, um, I see him empower women right? I see yeah. him use his power to empower, to lift up, to, to flourish. Mm -hmm. um, I don't see, G and, and in particularly in a culture where women were low status, didn't have power, didn't have agency, didn't have a lot of voice, where there was a lot of abuse, he does the exact opposite. Yeah. And so he's our standard, right? And I, I'm, and I love what you said. I think Jesus can handle his reputation yeah. with or without me. So exactly. So you've written another book that's coming out, and uh, I love the title, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals yeah. Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. And uh, it's a study a lot about, you've mentioned that you've kind of pursued studying evangelical masculinity. So why did you decide to write this? And what do you think in it needed addressing? And who in particular would really benefit from reading it? Yeah, so this is essentially a book on white evangelical masculinity and militarism. And I, I started working on it actually when I was still writing uh, the book on Bushnell. And it was because my students at a Christian college had brought me some of the uh, Christian books on masculinity that they were reading in their dorm rooms. And they said, you know, Professor, I think you want to see some of this. And this was the era of John Eldridge's Wild at Heart mm -hmm. and many other books of that genre and as a historian, I and as a Christian, I was really horrified by what I was reading. You know that these books were saying that um, you know God is a warrior God, and to, to you know, men were made in His image, so every man needs a battle to fight, and a woman needs to share in that adventure. She needs to be seductive, not fierce, but all the strength and the power goes to men, and and they are reckless, and God made them that way. He made them dangerous um, so that they can protect you know, the church, they can protect the nation, they can protect women and children. And, you know, reading this through Bushnell's lens, I thought, this, this is not good. This is dangerous. And so I started uh, researching more into more recent understandings of biblical manhood. And I realized just how pervasive this militancy was and how that affected evangelical um, patterns of behavior in the home. But also, and perhaps ultimately more significantly, in terms of their politics, in terms of their views of war, of the military, of, um, you know, building border walls, of even on, on racial issues, we're all tied up in this very militant idea of a rugged, tough, even violent white male protector. And again, with Bushnell's lens, I thought this is not Christian and it's not good for women. And That's so I, I pursued that. Yeah. So who would you recommend read it? I mean, of course, everybody, but like, <laughs> right. who's your target audience? Who really, who really, God, who, who yeah, will I've read got, it and who actually should read it? <laughs> uh, yeah, I've got two target audiences here. So my publisher's target audience is basically the American public. Anyone who reads the New York Times, who reads the Atlantic, who wants to understand evangelicals in America, and um, particularly in American politics. My heart <laughs> uh, wants all evangelicals to read this. And I've, I've been speaking on this and writing shorter pieces. And I've been overjoyed to find that, in fact, my target audience is white evangelical men themselves. That's awesome. And so many have come to me or have, have written to me after reading something I've, I've or, or hearing an interview just saying, 
this is the story of my life. And thank you for helping me to see, you know, I was a part of this. I was maybe uncomfortable with this or that, but I just didn't really know my, my pastor said this was biblical manhood. My, you know, my buddies were reading this in Bible study and I just, and, and I, and, you know, to, to tell the whole story, which is what I do here and to show what it has done and why it matters. I think this is a book that's really critical for evangelicals themselves. And I think they're going to recognize their own stories in this book. I love that. You know, I, I, you tapped upon something which we don't have time to get into, but maybe at another time we can. And that is that, um, patriarchy hasn't been very helpful. This biblical manhood and womanhood has not been very helpful for women. It's actually been dangerous for women, but I actually think it's really hurt our brothers also in so many ways. Like here's the one uh, way in which a man is supposed to look. What if you don't, what if you're not a John Wayne, you know? And and, and so I I have had brothers, um, not, not my, my blood siblings, but brothers in Christ who Mm -hmm. are, uh, you know, artists and, um, they're followers, not leaders. And they're for, they yep. love their wives and their kids so beautifully. And, and they'll come mm-hmm. and they'll say, I've had one of them ask me, Jackie, what, if you had to say, what is some, you know, a quality about me you would fix? What is it? And I'm like, yeah. that you keep thinking you need to be fixed because yeah. you're not this John Wayne cowboy kind of person that your yeah. church is preaching that men are supposed to be. You're an amazing exactly. human being. And so I think as much as women have been put in bondage by this kind of teaching, I think we've put a lot of men in bondage too. That is, that is so true. Uh, one of my interview subjects said, you know, if you're not, if you can't live up to that, and really who can, very few men can, that, that ideal, then you're a second-class citizen, a second-class man, and a second-class Christian, you know, mm-hmm. that you're somehow not good enough. And I think that the, the pain runs deep there as well. Yeah, I would say even emasculated. So again, yeah. we could go on about that. This yeah. is a whole other topic that needs to be addressed. But I want to thank you. Uh, I know you're busy. I know you're taking care of your students. You've got kids at home and all kinds of things that have to happen while living during a pandemic. So thank you for sharing your time and your mind and your expertise. And for those of you who are listening, if you want to keep up with Kristen, you can go to her blog at Pathos Anxious Bench, and you can also find her on Twitter at KKDUMEZ. Yes, she's got one of those weird last names, just like I do. And you can also find her on Facebook. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you so much, Jackie. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.